Okay, today we continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 6, and we are going to read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 6, and then Albert will come and teach on that. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Good morning. Thanks, Mark, for uh, teaching last week. I thought I was going to be out of town, but then we had some change in plans. Whenever I'm away from the pulpit, it just feels like forever, even though it's just been one week, but it feels like a year. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 is what we're looking at this morning, and let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask for your presence. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've just finished a very, very busy season. We've all celebrated Christmas. We celebrated New Year's and all the conversations all of us had was, what are you doing for Christmas? What are you doing for New Year's? Are you visiting family? I've probably asked all of you that same question. And it's just that time of season where many of you go back to your hometown where you grew up, and this is actually where we find Jesus. Jesus going back to his hometown, Nazareth. And what happened here in Nazareth is right before Jesus sent the 12 out two by two to the surrounding areas with the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, which is not a coincidental thing. Because in Jesus' hometown, there was a very important lesson for them to learn about sharing the gospel and the mission that Jesus gave them. What was this really, really important lesson? And to summarize it in one word, it's this. It's rejection. Rejection. And all of us know how this feels, right? If God was rejected, I mean, forget about was rejected, God is rejected today. Now, don't you think that each one of us will experience rejection if Jesus experienced rejection? Of course, we will. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, brought by Jesus himself, was rejected by his own people in his own hometown. And that is an important lesson for us to understand because if the gospel was rejected coming from Jesus, the best communicator and the embodiment of the good news of the kingdom of God to ever live. We will surely experience rejection with sharing the gospel. 
Now, what's interesting is that if there were no rejection, the opportunity for our own belief and faith to increase would not be present. It's because of unbelief and because of lack of faith that we have an opportunity to increase our faith, to increase our belief. So before Jesus sent them out, he wanted to show them what they were getting into that he himself would be getting rejected. So be ready for this. You see this happening to me, you guys need to be ready for this. We live in a context of unbelief. We live in a context, in a society, in a culture that houses skeptical people, that houses disbelieving people. This is where we live. We live in the Bay Area. This is who we are, even as Christians. Most of you are thinking, like, I don't believe that. I know, I know. <laughs> but you take a look at Jesus' own family who witnessed him throughout his entire life. And what was their opinion of him? They thought he was nuts. They thought he was out of his mind. Mark 3, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And this was the family that he returned to. And maybe many of you returned to a family like this as well, who just think you are out of your mind and you're going back to them. And a family that thinks you're absolutely nuts. So picking this up, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, there are some scholars who believe that this is the same event that happened in Luke chapter 6, and there are others who think that this is an entirely different occurrence. Now, what Mark does is he doesn't explicitly tell us what Jesus taught. Instead, he wants to focus on their reaction, at their astonishment. Now, why would those in the synagogue be astonished? Well, they all knew him. They all knew who this guy was. They knew Jesus came from a poor family. They all knew he came from a family of poor reputation. They all knew that he didn't get educated in the top rabbinical schools. And here Jesus came strolling into town with a band of followers, which was not an unusual thing because that's what typically happened with rabbis. Rabbis had followers. But then you look at his followers they just kind of smelled fishy. So there was a bunch of fishermen there. There was a tax collector there. There was a zealot. There were no scholars amongst this group. There were no people of highly reputed families within this group. And so Jesus himself has no credibility, and Jesus' followers have no credibility. So when Mark recorded that this group of people was astonished, it didn't mean that they were impressed it wasn't a positive astonishment. When we read those questions in verse 2, those questions were from a posture of cynicism, from a posture of disbelief. All of us here know that it's really difficult to break the mold of who people think you are, especially when they knew you as a child, especially when they knew you as a teenager. People we grew up with think we're the same people as when we were children as when we were teenagers. And when we've matured into adults, sometimes those same people still treat us like children. 
My mom was here. We flew her up for Christmas and New Year's and things like that. And I've lived here close to 20 years, and she was still telling me to bring my jacket. <laughs> She's from Southern Cal. Like, she has no clue what the weather's like here. I look at her, I'm like, what? And I remember even like going to Kenya in the middle of summer on a mission trip. And she was like, hey, remember to bring your jacket. I'm going to die if I bring it. Anyway, this happened to Jesus. Right? People who grew up with Jesus, played with Jesus, ate with Jesus, went to school with Jesus. They're all there. And people who knew him and his family weren't able to get past that Jesus was this local boy who grew up in their streets. And so this familiarity with Jesus perverted them from seeing who Jesus really is. And that's a danger for us as well. Something that we had tried to address during our Advent series was just the familiarity that we have with the Christmas story, with Jesus. That we can easily get caught up with our past experiences with Christ, with Christmas, and what we think we know about it that we lose the splendor, we lose the majesty, we lose the magnificence of the birth of Messiah. We lose that idea that Jesus Christ is Lord. They were astonished, but not in a good way. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It was really difficult for them to see splendor because what they saw was this really ordinary man from a really ordinary family. And they didn't know Jesus to be anyone special or his family to be anyone special. And perhaps this is a struggle for some of you. God becoming an ordinary man? Well, what empire did he rule? What military did he command? What titles and jobs did he hold? Was he an emperor? Was he a senator? Was he a governor, a general? No, he's a carpenter. He's a carpenter. So what world-renowned place was he from? Was he from Rome? No, he's... Galilee. What did Jesus have to show for his short 33 years of life? Now, speaking of things like the resurrection 2,000 years ago, is that real to you or is that just kind of folklore and, or myth? Now, we have the benefit of learning from history and the undeniable world impact of Jesus, but the familiarity has created this veil in a lot of people. So we read that the people were astonished, and in verse 3, I want to take a closer look at this word offense. They took offense at Jesus. You know, who does Jesus think he is? You look back at verse 3, he's a carpenter, meaning he's nothing special. He's just like us. We all kind of do work around the house, like it's nothing special. He's the son of Mary, which has some negative implications. Because they all knew that Jesus' birth was scandalous. Hey, you know, you're Mary's son. Now, in Jewish tradition, you were known as your father's son. So they would have said, you're the son of Joseph. 
And that's if they were to properly address Jesus, he would have been addressed that way, son of Joseph. Even if Joseph was dead, which many presume has happened already. But these people don't do that. They refer to him as Mary's son because you know why? Who knows who your real dad is? We just know you're Mary's son, but we don't really know if you're Joseph's son. And everyone there knew Jesus' brothers and sisters. They were just like any other Galilean, nothing special about them. So Jesus, the stories that people are telling about you, I mean, come on. Really? We know your family. And even your own family thinks you're out of your mind. And look at these guys who are following you. I mean, who are they? These are a bunch of nobodies. And so this is what we know about Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he went to the synagogue to find a man with an unclean spirit, and Jesus delivered that man from that unclean spirit. He then went on to heal Simon's mother-in-law of illness, along with many others who were sick and had diseases, and he casted out many demons. He did this throughout Galilee. Then he healed a leper, a paralytic, while forgiving his sins. He healed a man with a withered hand. He continued to heal many people. He calmed the sea. He casted out demons from a Gentile man, many, legion. He raised a dead little girl. He healed a hemorrhaging woman. All of that happens before chapter 6, before he gets into his hometown. And then we get to verse 5 of Mark 6, and this is what it reads. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What? Do you realize what Jesus has done from chapters 1 through 5, and this is what he could do in chapter 6? See, we see that there is power in faith, and belief to overcome incredible odds, incredible obstacles. But there is also incredible power behind the lack of faith, behind the lack of belief, unbelief that is dreadfully crippling. Jesus overcame death, demons, diseases, but in his own hometown with his own siblings, Jesus doesn't do these amazing, miraculous things like calming the tempestuous sea. He heals a few sick people. Don't get me wrong, it's still a miracle. I have four young children and they've been passing this cold to me for like the last three months. I would love to be healed. Still a miracle, but slightly different scale, don't you think? Slightly different scale than raising a little girl from the dead. Now, none of this was a surprise to Jesus, and this isn't surprising in light of what the prophet Isaiah wrote about Messiah in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up being Before him, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus did amazing things, but not in his hometown. He healed a few sick people. Mark records that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Now, it doesn't mean that 
these people had power over Jesus and because of that, then he's incapable of doing stuff, right? Like they stopped him. It was nothing like that. It was because of the people's unbelief. That unbelief had power over themselves. And it's not that Jesus was dependent on their belief or their unbelief to do miracles because he's powerful regardless of our belief. But our belief allows us to experience the splendor of God. It takes nothing away from God's power or who he is. You see, the astonishment, the offense that people had toward Jesus negatively affects the unbeliever. And Jesus is not limited by one's belief or unbelief. He is God whether we believe it or we don't believe it. Our unbelief doesn't change anything about God. The unbelief just deprives someone from experiencing God. And that he can it's just that he won't. See, Jesus doesn't force himself on people. He is not a barbarian. He's not a tyrant. He will not force anyone to believe. We are given the dignity to believe. It doesn't change who he is. We're just given the opportunity to change who we are. Imperfect people separated from God because of sin to being Still imperfect people, but united with God. See, we're still sinners whether we believe in Jesus or not. The belief doesn't change that, but the belief in Jesus does allow us to see him at work and to see him for us to be viewed differently by God from unrighteous people who don't believe to righteous people who believe because he makes us righteous. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went among the villages teaching. I think we've become very arrogant believing that God answers to us, that he has to prove himself to us. You know, it takes a lot for Jesus to marvel at us. What can we possibly do to have him marvel at us? He's the creator of the universe. It's not like you can bring him something and be like, oh, wow. I mean, it's kind of fake wowing, like I do this all the time with my three-year-old. You know, she does a drawing and brings it up, I'm like, wow, oh, that's great. It's not like we can bring him any material thing, right? It doesn't work like that. But here's something that will get Jesus marveling. It's actually only two things. It's faith or the lack of it. That's it. If you look at the Bible, there are only two times in the entire Bible where Jesus was recorded as marveling or marvel. He marveled at the centurion's faith, right, in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. And then here, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. That's it. You can't find it anywhere else. And he marveled at the centurion's faith because the centurion didn't have anything to hang his faith on. And yet he didn't even need Jesus to go under his roof. He said to Jesus, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And Jesus said that not even in all of Israel that he found such faith. And then here he marveled at their unbelief because they had the benefit of having everything to believe. He grew up there. His family was there. They had Jesus with them since his childhood. They had these insights that no one else would have had. They had access to Jesus for decades. Unbelief. Unbelievable. He marveled at it. 
Where are you this morning? You know, if you were just kind of set one-on-one with God right now, would he marvel at your faith? Or would he marvel at your unbelief? Now, what does unbelief look like? It's emptiness. It's darkness. It's no purpose. Now, what would marveling at your faith look like? Let's look at the disciples. Jesus called fishermen and others to be with him, and after a time of being with Jesus, he sends them out on his behalf. Now, up until this point, they've really just been observers. They really don't have a main part. They're just kind of hanging out with Jesus. And this is finally where they get to do something on their own. Like, they get kicked out of the nest. See, they haven't really done anything yet. But their faithfulness of following Jesus until this point will result in them being sent out and they're going to be actively participating in the mission of Jesus. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, we see that Jesus gave them authority. That the disciples saw Jesus' authority. But they themselves did not have any authority over unclean spirits themselves. So Jesus gave them authority to be an extension to his ministry, to teach what he taught, to do what he did. Now in Jewish culture, when someone sent you on their behalf, it was like they were just sending themselves. They had that authority. So whoever sent you, you came under their authority. And so here we have a foreshadow of what the disciples would do after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and what those who are sent by Jesus will do until his return. Verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. This is about keeping things simple. And this is for any of you who complain that I'm irreverent when I wear sandals. Like, here's your biblical proof. It's just practical information given for their mission. That they couldn't be weighed down by this stuff. They needed to be mobile. They needed to be agile. They needed to be adaptable and dependent on God. And things will change to necessitate carrying different things for this journey. This isn't a hard set of rules. Because you think that if these guys were sent out to Scandinavia in the middle of winter, that Jesus would say, don't take two tunics. It doesn't make sense, right? Of course, take a coat. Be warm, you know. Now, towards the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 36 said this. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now, that's referring to Mark chapter 6. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So you see how it's not a command of how we are to go out. It is not this rigid set of rules or a conclusive way for those who are sent out by Jesus to travel like this. We need to be flexible and that this isn't a prescription on how to be sent out by Jesus to do ministry. Because again, if this were the case, we wouldn't have to think. We would just kind of do that. We wouldn't take a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. We'd wear sandals. We'd just kind of do things that way. 
But that's not how God wants us to go. What's it saying? We are to be completely dependent on God. We are to live simply. And we are to go about his mission as appropriate for that mission. Now, if Jesus were to call you to send you, would you be able to do it? Now, there are some people who couldn't because they're too leveraged financially. They're too dependent on things other than God to make that move. And that lack of simplicity doesn't allow you to be agile or mobile and adaptable to different possibilities. So this has some general principles to follow, such as simplicity and flexibility and appropriateness, but this isn't a set rigid list of things to bring or how to go about doing ministry. I recall when I was dating Katie, and so we were driving around looking at houses, and I remember going to different houses and God explicitly telling me no. I was like, what? It's a smart thing to do, to buy a house. I remember test driving a Porsche 911 Turbo. <laughs> and I remember going on the freeway and flooring that thing. I'm like, I love this car. I'm going to get it. And right away, I heard God say, no. I heard his voice. I just heard his, no. I'll take it back to the lot. And I didn't get it. And I look back in my life now, and if I had leveraged myself financially on that car that I wanted, on the house that we wanted, and didn't make those decisions, I would not be able to go into ministry. I would not be able to be mobile enough and agile enough and adaptable and flexible. Now, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn because I struggle with a lot of these things. You can ask our board about that. I struggle with a lot of this stuff about having and not having. It's still an ongoing thing for me. But here are some guidelines as to the response to how to live, simply. To be adaptable, to be flexible, to be mobile. And we get to verses 10 and 11. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now here are some guidelines as to how to respond to hospitality or the lack of it. Now, this was a culture that highly valued hospitality. And if you're a religious leader, there were these provisions that hospitality provided for you when you were traveling about. Now, like many things, people abuse generosity. And people abuse hospitality. So Jesus instructs them on how to respond to hospitality so that it doesn't get in the way of the message that they are delivering. Now we do this when we go out to minister to people, don't we? We go learn how to be courteous to other people's hospitality so that we don't ruin our testimony and offend people. We do this when we prepare for mission trips or prepare for going wherever. We kind of learn other people's culture so that we don't offend now in verse 11, Jesus lets them know that there will be some people who won't want to help even though the culture dictates that they need to. And so they're going to face rejection even though they have something really great 
to share. And even though they're rejected, you know, don't force anything. Be gentle. Don't intrude. And then you just move on. Because we can't force the gospel on anyone. It's rude. It's disrespectful. And when it's done in this way, no one is going to hear what you have to say anyway because you're just being a jerk. So don't do that. Now, what's up with this shaking off the dust that is on their feet? I think it's actually kind of cool. All of Jesus' disciples would have understood what Jesus meant by this because Jesus was talking to them about something that was very common in their day. For us, we kind of have to dig a little bit about it. But in Jesus' day, you know, when a rabbi left a Gentile area, he'd shake the dust off of his feet to symbolize that he was leaving behind the things from people who didn't know God, and he was returning to the people who had a relationship with God. This was kind of their tangible way to remind them, you know, we belong here, not here. So, like, we're getting rid of stuff from here, and we're moving on to this. And we're returning to that. So it was this physical way of connecting to God. And so for Jesus' disciples, a physical, tangible way to say, like, yeah, I'm not stuck there. I am connected to Jesus. I'm connected to his mission. And I'm not going to let that rejection weigh me down. So if people don't want the gospel that you bring, don't be a nuisance to them. You know, get the hint that they don't want to hear from you. Dust yourself off. Dust off the rejection. Don't take it all as a personal attack. And then move on. Verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. See, they said and they did what Jesus said and did. It was nothing more. It was nothing less. And it's pretty simple, isn't it? This is a really, really simple message. We get the gospel all complicated and we start throwing all these different words that people really like. Like, oh, it's about love and it's about joy and it's about peace and all this kind of stuff. And we throw all this stuff out and then you know the word that we usually leave out? Repentance. But if you boiled it all down, what other message is there to give? We could throw all this stuff out because of course, of course it involves love, grace, mercy, joy, peace. All of those wonderful things that a relationship with Jesus brings. But if you boil it all down, the foundational piece to all of it is repentance because without it, all those wonderful things are just a temporary existence. And all those wonderful things you can experience them temporarily without Jesus, right? You can experience love. You can experience grace from people and mercy from people and joy and peace. You can experience all of those things. The one that separates all of it is repentance. To receive that from God, to receive all of those other things for everlasting, not just a temporary time. See, there will be a day when Jesus Christ returns and we will be asked about our response to his gospel. We'll only be asked to respond in marvelous ways. Do you have faith or do you have unbelief? Those are the only two things that marvel Jesus. Now, 
God, Jesus, he provides us a way for forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross, and we need to repent of those sins and to turn to him. You know, his resurrection was proof of victory over darkness, and Jesus ascended to heaven, and there will be a day when he returns, that day that he is coming. Do you have faith that that is true or an unbelief that it is not? And so it boils down to repentance. Now, what is repentance? Essentially, it's this. It's a change. A change of direction that you were heading into and that you didn't have a relationship with Jesus and you're changing to a direction that you are having a relationship with Jesus. And in faith, repentance, that change leads to a change of heart, a change of mind. Now, don't get confused with what you know about repentance. Because you know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And you probably know about Orthodox Christian values. You probably know about agreeing with Christian morals. But that's not repentance. Knowing is not repentance. Is there a change? The change is the repentance. Is there a difference between you as a Christian, a faithful one, or an unbeliever? It's not what you know. Because even the demons know. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask God that the reality of our relationship is something that we are confronted with this morning. That we are affirmed with our relationship with you. Or that we are challenged in such a way that we need to repent that we need to change directions. God, would you impart to your church just the humility that we would remove that arrogance from us, which is really hard to do because we've grown up in a culture, we've grown up in a society that is quite cynical and quite skeptical. And so, Lord, would you use those things for good? as you often do? Would you use your church that is familiar with this culture to affect it in such a way that it leads it to repentance? In Jesus' name, amen.